How's it going everybody and welcome back to episode number three of the Inline G Flute Podcast with me, your host, Inline G. No, with me, your host, Gareth Houston. In the last episode, I requested that some of you call me Inline G and believe it or not, not a single fucker did. So we're sticking with Gareth Houston, but we're getting closer, we're getting closer. Anyway, how are you? How are you all getting on? How's it going? Happy Friday, if you're listening on Friday. Or happy, happy weekend, if you're listening to this at some point on the weekend of what, the 21st of July this comes out, 2023. I hope you're all having a lovely weekend. I hope you got something nice planned. I actually record these podcast episodes way during the week. So usually like a Tuesday night or a Monday night, sometimes I'll batch record an episode or two. Um, But because I record them in advance, it means I'm free on a Friday. And normally I don't work much on a Friday. So on Friday afternoon, by about 3 p.m., I'm already knee deep in a gin and Fanta. And that's why my replies to your lovely messages are so enthusiastic on a Friday. Because I'm getting very fucking carried away already at that point. Here, anyway, I digress. We're here. We're at episode three. The things are taking a turn. Episode one and two were lovely. They were great. We got off to a flyer. Episode three, we're still off to a flyer, but we're getting spicy today. We're getting sexy. We are going to get in to what I think, no, not what I think, what is the sexiest piece of music in the entire flute literature. The solo from Daphnis and Chloe by Maurice Ravel. I genuinely think I could start an OnlyFans where I talk about this solo in my beautiful Belfast accent and I can make a fucking killing but i won't so anyway that leads me on to my next point trigger warning (laughs) it's maybe a little bit late for it but trigger warning first of all this episode will contain themes of a very sexual nature i will be talking about a lot of sexual things because you can't not when you're talking about Ravel and when you're talking about daphnis and chloe i will talk i will be talking about sexual themes that some may potentially find upsetting so please have this as your warning before we start I should also probably warn you that there's a fair bit of swearing in these podcasts, but fuck you, if you didn't know by this point, it's too late. So, whatever. You would have turned off by now. So anyway, if you're upset by those kind of things, go listen to another episode, okay? Listen to something else, or listen to another podcast. There's some great flute podcasts out there. Go listen to Talking Flutes. Fucking brilliant podcast. Go listen to that one instead. Come back with me next week. So, here... Anyway, we're getting into Daphnis and Chloe. Now, the idea of this podcast is to get everything under one roof. One place where you can go to get all you need to do with Daphnis and Chloe for a flute player. So if you're a flute player and you're watching this and you're maybe studying the piece so you want to learn something new about it, I hope you get new information from this. I hope I clarify a few things for you and I make the whole mystery around the piece a little bit more simple. Get it all here. If you're not a flute player or if you don't know the piece as well, if you're not familiar with Daphnis and Chloe... I hope you enjoy this. My recommendation is again, go pour yourself a wee, a wee gin and lilt. A wee gin and lilt and get ready. Stick a wee decorative umbrella in it like I have here. Some of you may have noticed I haven't got my usual beer this week. That is because, unfortunately, I am back to my diet. So I'm trying to lose a bit of weight. Too many calories and beer. So this is a gin and Fanta Lemon Zero. Fanta Orange Zero, tell I, with a little decorative orange umbrella. Get yourself some of those. Um... For the ASMR listeners, for the audio listeners. <laughs> oh yeah, that is my beautiful reusable metal straw. And that is nice. So yeah, if you haven't heard of Daphnis and Chloe, 
go get yourself a drink. I'm going to take you through this. We're going to get through this all together. We'll also be talking about some of the more problematic themes that come up in Daphnis and Chloe. And not just in Daphnis and Chloe, but more in general around we pervy pan. And that's what I'll be will be that's what I will be referring to him as from now on. So that's the mythical Greek god who features in a lot of shit, okay? But we're gonna be referring to him as we pervy pan, because that's exactly what he is. But most people know him as just Pan. Now what are we actually going to be talking about today? We're going to split this up into a few different sections. I'm going to be telling you what Daphnis and Chloe is. Telling you about the piece. I'm going to tell you the story in a normal fucking way that you can understand it. Because even I, someone who's played this piece and watched it a few times in full ballet form, didn't quite get it sometimes. So I've got the story cleared out. Easy peasy. I'll tell you about Maurice Ravel who he is, a couple of fun facts about him, and some more interesting things that I think you guys relate to. And then finally, we will go on to what makes the piece and the flute solo in it so fucking sexy. Now listen, if you can't be asked listening to all of that, and you just want to get certain bits, the chapters are always in the description. So if you're on YouTube, you'll be able to click, you'll follow the timeline, you can click where you want your new one, or you can scroll down in the description and find out what's coming up and click one of the timestamps. If you're listening to the audio version on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever other shit you people use, um, go into the description. I sit up for a while finding these spots and typing them in. So go use them for me. Go into the description and click your favorite bits. Get stuck in. Okay. So what is Daphnis and Chloe? And what is this famous flute solo that I'm talking about from the piece? So first of all, we have to go right back. Daphnis and Chloe started as a romantic novel, ancient Greek romantic novel. So we are going way back here. We're going right back to the second century. Now that is still after the likes of Homer and the Odyssey and the Iliad and all that shit, but we're still back a very, very, very long time. Now the story started off in 1909, obviously much later, a very famous ballet dancer called Sergei Diaghilev, um, said beautifully there with my accent, decided he wanted to write a ballet on this story. Okay, so he goes to the main man of the moment, the famous French composer Maurice Ravel, and Ravel gets stuck in to writing a ballet, writing music for the ballet to put to this story, and it gets released in 1912. He actually also wrote two suites from the ballet. Now, this is important to know for flute players. There are three versions of Daphnis and Chloe. There are the full ballet, suite number one, and suite number two. Now, the way the suites work, you have to think of these as sort of greatest hits medley. Okay, it's got all the hits, got all the things you want from it. So they take, or they, Ravel will take all the big themes from it, all those stuff, and put them just for orchestra. So you'll drop the ballet, do all that, it's just for concert, get the greatest hits in, all the big tunes, arrange them. So take away the dancers, take away all that stuff, and we're back to that. The ballet itself is written in three parts. Now that's really important, okay? The first suite that Ravel wrote was actually written a year before the ballet itself was released. That's suite number one, and it only has music from the first two parts. Very important, because the flute solo pops up in part three of the ballet, meaning that suite number one doesn't have the flute solo. So if you're ever asked to play Daphnis and Chloe suite number one, there's no big fancy flute solo in it, so don't worry about it. It's only in the ballet and the second suite. Now, the second suite was finished a year after the ballet in 1913. It does have the flute solo, obviously, so be aware of that. The first suite, although it's not very often performed, to be totally honest, is a rare piece, but the first suite doesn't really, yeah, it doesn't get played much and it doesn't have the flute solo. That's most important. 
So the music itself, we will talk about a little bit, is it's very Ravel and it's very, very, very fucking French. Okay, I have to say, it is very French. What I mean by that, it's it's sensual, it's fucking romantic as hell, um, extremely exaggerated emotions, everything's over the top, it's very fluid, it's very, it almost feels, it's rich, it's luscious, it's creamy, it's it's La France, okay, it's, it's so French, so, so, so French. Now, the entire ballet is worth a listen, or a watch, and the entire suite it's probably worth a lot. It's worth a listen as well. The suite's more listenable. So the ballet itself is the guts of an R, and the suite, the suite number two. We're not talking about suite number one. It doesn't exist. It's in the bin. Suite number two, it's twenty minutes more or less. Um, but yes, I know the flute players. You just guys want to just skip straight to the solo. So we're going to get talking about talking. Sorry about the story of Daphne and Chloe, and where the inspiration came from. And then that way, if you're ever asked in an orchestral excerpt exam or in an exam at school, what's the story of Daphne and Chloe? You don't have to go Googling it and Wikipedia it like I had to do to work this out. You can just say, here, the Inline G Flute podcast has me sorted. Fucking service. Where else would you get it? So we're going to get into the story now of Daphne and Chloe. So it's a Greek novel. It's written in the second century by a fellow called Longus. It's set on the island of Lesbos. Now grow up, right, first of all. Fucking grow up. I can hear you sniggering back there. And you know what? Actually, Lesbos is where the word lesbian comes from. There was a... I don't know if it's a poet or a writer. I don't really know what the difference was at that time anyway. But called Sappho. And she was the first sort of lesbian. The first known lesbian. So that's why we have the word lesbian from Lesbos. Because Sappho was from Lesbos. So grow the fuck up when you were laughing at that name. Now Longus, we're not even sure if that's his real name. A lot of people reckon it's just a mispronunciation of the word in Greek for Lesbos. Because Daphnis and Chloe is set on the island of Lesbos. There wasn't much known about it, so we're assuming that's what it probably was. We know fuck all else about him. So anyway, we'll get into the story. So, Daphnis, that's a fella, and Chloe is a girl. Now, they're both abandoned at birth. They're wee babies, they're abandoned at birth. Now, they get found by this couple of shepherds. One of actually, yeah, this is annoying thing. One of them is actually a goat herd. I didn't know that term existed. You had a shepherd and a goat herd, but whatever the fuck that is. I'm assuming it's a shepherd that works with goats. But anyway, they find this couple. This couple finds them. And they raise them together as foster parents. So they have two foster parents. Now, Daphne and Chloe grow up a little bit and they start fancying each other. They start liking each other. They start to see what's going on here now. There is a guy called Philetus. He's described as a wise old cowherd. Often I find the words wise and old mean you're a bit of a pervert. But anyway, here, here, here. Who am I to judge? So anyway, he explains to Daphne and Chloe when they're just young teenagers that what they're feeling is called love and the cure for it is to start kissing. Fair play to you. Knock yourselves out. So they get stuck in. They start doing the kissing. They get knocked about. Now again, we're getting back to another wise old character. Well, this one's a woman now, and I can never pronounce her name properly, so excuse me for this, but I think it's Lycanion, okay? But anyway, it's this so mature woman, okay, um, who teaches Daphne about lovemaking. Now, for the rest of this podcast, I the word lovemaking makes my skin crawl. So for the rest of this podcast, I will refer to lovemaking as riding. That is an Irish term, is the best term, okay? 
it's a very wholesome term in many ways. It's not aggressive. It's not abrasive. It doesn't rub up against... Well, <laughs> it does if you ask. But writing is what we will prefer. We will refer to the act of lovemaking as. It's writing, all right? So, and then apparently... So this wise old woman... And apparently wise old woman... Wise old man is a wee pervert. Wise old woman... That's a MILF. <laughs> that's a MILF, man. This is history's first MILF. Anyway... <laughs> Oh, how can you grow up? She tells Daphnis about riding. She says Daphnis, right, this is how you do it. Now, I don't know if she actually does it with him herself or whatever in the story, but anyway. But then she says to him, Daphnis, don't you go back and do that on Chloe. Because in her words, I'm doing our quotations here for the audio listeners, in her words, she will scry, uh, she will scream and cry and lie bleeding as if murdered. Which... Mate, to be honest, if she ends up like that, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's not the way you're meant to do it, mate. If she ends up like that, you fucking... <laughs> you go back to lessons, mate. I'm not going to be able to get through this podcast. Anyway, they go off, and Daphnis and Chloe, they don't do the writing. They go off their separate ways, and they have a bunch of mad adventures. Like every fucking Greek novel, they go off and have a bunch of fucking mad adventures, and they do all kinds of weird stuff. And then at the very end, their mums and dads find them, and they get married. Amen. They have happily after after. Blah 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 blah. Happy days. Everyone's a fucking winner. Now during the adventures, who fucking turns up? Who cranes his fucking ugly wee goody neck up? Is Pan, wee pervy Pan, the Greek god. Now, as I said earlier, we cannot go into the fight world without talking about Pan. You've all heard of him so many different ways, and if you haven't. You're about to find out. So let's just get this over with and let's talk about Pan. So Pan was the Greek god of shepherds and nature and all that shite. Um, He was a womanizer. That was more what he was known for and more particularly known for not taking no as an answer. Yeah, I know. This is where the problematic stuff gets in. So there's even this one time, it's a very famous story, where he chases this wee girl called Syrinx or Syrinx. You've heard that name before if you're a flute player. She turns herself into some reed. So she asks her sisters. She's running away from Pan. And she says to her sisters, the magic, whatever the fuck it is. Here, turn me into some reeds so I can get away from Pan. And he won't try and ride me. So they turn her into some reeds. And then Pan chops the reeds off and starts blowing into them. And playing them as a flute. Yeah. So, and this fellow was half goat. Like, you would run away from him. You would turn yourself into reeds. But anyway, so he chops the reeds up, plays them like a flute. So Rings is dead. There you are. And, uh, yeah. So that's small man syndrome, essentially. Pan's got small man syndrome. He's a wee wanker, and I hope he's dead. But anyway, that obviously inspires the piece Syrinx, or Syrinx. It also is... So Syrinx is the piece by Claude Debussy. It's probably the one of the biggest pieces in the solo flute repertoire, a piece for just flute. A lot of flute players, you know this. It's also the same for the start of La Premier d'un Fun by Debussy. So we have the solo at the start of that, just flute. That's, again, Pan. Okay, it's all taking this image of Pan, and it's going to be the same in a minute for this. So, the flute solo, where does it pop up in the story? When we're talking about the relation to the story, not in the music, but in the story. So, basically, when Chloe is off on her adventures, she gets captured by some pirates, obviously. And who saves the day but we fucking pervy Pan? We stinky Pan comes along and saves the day. So, Daphnis and Chloe go and say, thank you, thank you very much, mate, the Pan, and... To say thank you to him, they sort of recreate um, his syrinx story of him chasing syrinx, chopping her head and all off, or chopping her reeds off, whatever the blah. Um, 
they recreate that as a dance to say thank you. And so when Chloe's doing this dance to be syrinx at the start of the story, Pan plays the flute along to it. And that's the flute solo, that's where the flute solo is in Daphnis and Chloe, in the ballet and in the piece. So there you are, that's the solo, We Stinky Pan. Right, part number three, and we're going to be talking about Maurice Ravel. Now that breaks my heart that I'm going to have to refer to him as Ravel from now on, like a fucking Ravel. Um, but yeah. I live in France, lads. I know how to say French things. Maurice Ravel. But I'll say it like Ravel. Anyway, we're going to talk about him, the composer of this big piece. We're starting to get some momentum here. We're starting to follow this along. Now, Ravel's a French composer, obviously. Very French. He was born in 1875 down in Biarritz. Now, that's actually really close to the Spanish border, right down in the south of France. I think it's actually like 11 kilometers away from the Spanish border. It's more or less the Basque country at this point. Um, although he spent most of his life knocking around Paris. So he went to study there and he composed there and he was doing a lot of shit in sort of the late 1800s, early 1900s and he clocks out brown bread in 1937. So Ravel is, he's a very unique composer. And I don't say that lightly. I'm a huge fucking Ravel fan. I really am. So I'm going to try and sell him here to you. But he really did change the game of classical music. He incorporated a lot of different things that composers up to that point hadn't incorporated in classical music. Or maybe had, but only once or twice at a time. He threw a lot of influences in. So he had modernist influences, um, Baroque, neoclassical, classical elements all in this. And even later on, when he starts doing the more advanced compositions, you get heavy influences of jazz music. You can hear it clear. Hear it clear? Clearly hear jazz music in his stuff as well. So he really got out there. Not a lot of composers were doing this shit. His most famous works, um, Daphnis and Chloe. Excuse me. Um, Pavan pour, euh, pour une enfant défunte. And a lot of piano stuff as well. Um, the one, if you're not familiar with Ravel or you're not familiar with classical music, the one that you definitely will know is the Bolero. Bolero. Um, it's the one that if you're British especially, you'll know that Torval and Dean did the, the fucking, the ice skating too. I never thought I'd sing in this podcast, but there you are. Fuck, he's getting everything in this. Um, yeah, so anyway, that's the ones he's most well known for. Great body of work. Yeah, exceptional composer. Um, if you think of that sort of trope, or that stereotype of the, like the introvert, weird, studious composer who's only working for the art and not for the money and is dedicated pure artist, that's Ravel. He lives up to that stereotype entirely. He famously spent so much fucking time on his um, compositions, spent a lot of time doing them, and... Yeah, never really cared a lot for money. Famously never really cared for money. Was financially not irresponsible, but not lavish in the way that in the way that many composers were. And also just didn't seem to give a shit about getting paid. He also revisited a lot of his compositions, so he'd do them and then go back to them and then do different versions and stuff like that. Or famously would write a lot of stuff for piano and then expand it into the orchestra, or take other people's works and write them for orchestra, so he would do the orchestration. Um yeah, he was famously small, skinny, weak, light, um, which ended up being a bit of a problem for him in later life because during the First World War, he was fucking desperate to sign up to serve in the French army. And he tried so many times to try to sign up, but they wouldn't let him in. He was too wee, he was too weak, 
they just went no you haven't got a fucking chance no he actually did eventually get in although only as a lorry driver but he was fiercely um, nationalistic and wanted to serve his country very idealistic as well as you can imagine so he did eventually make it in there now we can't talk about Ravel without talking about this there are very strong suggestions from certain parts of the classical music world that Ravel was gay but he was afraid to come out now people also believe that we can see this in his music and what I mean by that is they will use the word sensual so many fucking times that that's like a what do you call that a synonym for gay within music review circles of feels like sometimes or assuming associating sensuality with gayness is for some reason so fucking prevalent in classical music it's ridiculous um it's no surprise that classical music can sometimes be a little bit out of touch with the real world believe it or not believe it or not people who make a living off playing music from 300 years ago they can be a bit out of fucking touch it's posh it's elitist um and they do they're not really modern sometimes not everyone but sometimes and i think what's far more fucking obvious in this whole situation of was Ravel gay or was he not gay was he was asexual it's pretty obvious he was asexual the reason people think Ravel was gay is because there's basically no evidence or very little evidence that he had any real meaningful romantic relationship with anybody now to a lot of like born old white musicologists they will go oh he didn't have any relationship with anybody that means he was secretly gay not even considering the fact that he could have just been asexual not interested in writing in the slightest just have more shit to do. He even said himself, Ravel, the only love affair I ever had was with music. Like, he made that clear himself. So he was obviously... He was obviously asexual. Um, but yeah, I'm not going to into that. I'm not bitch too much. Well, I've got into it, but I'm not going to bitch anymore about that. But he did have another love affair, Ravel. And this is where he starts to get so lovely. So Ravel fucking loved cats he fucking loved cats and he loved siamese cats in particular and his favorite siamese cat was we one called mooney there's a picture of ravel with mooney which for the video watchers people on youtube here you'll see ravel and mooney here or over here somewhere if you're listening on the audio go google ravel mooney m-o-u-n-i he fucking loved his cats he lived with them all the time he often noted actually that he like observed their behavior all the time he's weird guy he observed their behavior and he actually thought that they were very similar to people from the basque country where he came from he thought they were like red-blooded and quite emotive and quite yeah all those stereotypes we have of spanish people or italian people or those kind of red-blooded europeans he thought he saw that in the the cats i i can believe that like siamese cats are lovely as well they got a lot of fucking like personality siamese cats they do all like the wee, the wee noises like the i can't do it um but they do all those wee noises and they're very like very cuddly and they're very sweet and they're very um they sort of bond on to humans quite a lot so i can sort of get that thing he had with them now the last thing not the last thing but one of the last things said about Ravel, he lived at the same time as a guy called claude debussy okay now they lived together at the same they didn't live together they lived at the same time and they're often mentioned together and they're thrown in the same bracket of great french composers from the early 1900s ravel and debussy as if they're similar i think there's some pretty big fucking differences between the two of them musically there is and more importantly humanly there is and it sounds in their music i generally find that ravel's music is more human and genuine and sincere and made for the pure love of the art and with like legitimate artistic intention behind everything he does he legitimately just wants to make the best art that he can 
I often feel like Debussy has a lot more ego, showmanship, virtuosity, and he's just generally more extrovert. And his music reflects that too. There's certain similarities, of course, with their style of orchestration. They're both expressionist in that kind of era, era um, but they are pretty different. And the way I would think of it is like Ravel is like the Beatles and Debussy's the Stones. That's, yeah, that's a fair comparison. Like, if I try to relate Ravel to like modern artists, I would say with the kind of artistic intent he had behind his music and so pure and so wholesome, I would say we're talking people like Cat Stevens, Haim, um, Bob Dylan, The Cure, fucking Taylor Swift at the start when she did her country music, those kind of people. And I think Ravel would be into that kind of music if he was alive today, yeah. So now that I've told you all about Ravel, and I hope you feel some kind of like little connection to him, you start to get to know him. Go look at pictures of him. Go read a bit about him. He is an adorable fucking person. Um, get that wee emotional connection with the composer, even though he's been dead for near 100 years. Get that wee feeling with him. It does help. It really does. So one of the hard things about listening to classical music is because these lads or ladies have been dead for so fucking long, it's hard to relate to them and we relate more to the performer and then the performer becomes the music and blah, 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 blah. But at the heart of it, it's this person's music. It's Ravel's music. It doesn't matter who the fuck is playing it. It is Ravel's music. So getting that little connection with him just pushes the boat out. A little bit for me anyway. So anyway, here, last bit, part four of this podcast, the last part, why is it so fucking sexy? Daphnis and Chloe, the suite and the ballet, why is it so fucking sexy? Why does it have, especially the solo, why does listening to this solo has the same effect on me, on all of you, as listening to Two Become Ones by the Spice Girls does? I know it has that effect on all of you. Or like the first time I saw the video Dirty by Christina Aguilera when I was just 10 years old and didn't know what was happening. Or the time fucking S Cup 7 broke up. Does anyone remember this? And S Cup 7 broke up and then Rachel Stevens went solo and she had her first single out and we all sat down to watch it as like 11 year old boys and then it was not fucking S Cup 7, it was fucking Sweet Dreams LAX and it was spicy. Can you open the window? Um, but anyway, here. Let's drop all the charades around Daphnis and Chloe first of all. Let's get this out of the way. Fucking the lengths, the fucking lengths that old white posh people in classical music will go to to avoid saying that this piece of music is just about sex is actually fucking hilarious it's actually stupid how far they go to and i've got some examples for you because i want you to see what the classical music world will say instead of just going this is a dirty piece of music because it fucking is and yeah well so examples first of all they yeah the word sensual is used a lot of times now there's nothing sensual about this piece there's nothing sensual about the intention of this. This is pure fucking lust. It's pure riding by. It's nothing sensual about it. But they'll use words like hectic, a sauna review ones as well. And rousing was one of the words used to describe this piece instead of arousing, which is what they wanted to fucking say, but they said rousing. Um, the best one though, fuck me. There was a guy, an American musicologist called uh, Arby Ornstein, and he said that the piece had a throbbing rhythm joyful and tumultuous now i only hear the word throbbing in one other setting and i tell you what it isn't fucking debussy it's <laughs> it's debussy <laughs> oh fuck i've been waiting all podcast to make that joke i've been making all fucking day to make that joke i am so sorry 
I'm so sorry, but it's fucking it is the pussy. <laughs> okay, so anyway, right, Je- Ravel actually asked for it. Like it is, it's a dirty piece of music, guys. Um, Ravel literally asks for a joyous uh, tumult or tumult joyous. I can't remember which one, but anyway, it means joyous tumult. Okay, so it mean that is a really fucking fancy way of saying an orgasm. Okay, and it's like the most obvious description. The end of this piece, or parts of this piece, especially there's a few times where this is obviously a musical depiction of an orgasm. It's so clearly that that it's not really, it's ridiculous to even think of otherwise. But anyway, we're going to look at reasons what actually make it sexy. And there's a lot of things that do and give it that sort of feeling that that you get from this piece. The first one is the orchestration. Now, by orchestration, I mean the way Ravel writes for the orchestra. Now, Ravel was, excuse me again, um, Ravel was a master orchestrator, famously known for his skills in writing for an orchestra. So he would often start the piece as a piano piece, and then he'd sort of work out how he's going to take that and expand it into a full-size orchestra. Now, the orchestra size for Daphnis and Chloe is fucking massive. This has to be it's so important to explain this. I can't over-exaggerate this, especially at the time. Like, in Mozart and Beethoven's time, we were talking very small orchestras, two of each wind instrument, so two flutes, two clarinets, two oboes, two bassoons, if even, a couple of horns, and a handful of strings. Okay, we're talking about 25 to 30 people together. We're talking also maybe 10 different parts. No, maybe 20. I should have counted that. Um... Daphnis is a different ballgame. Now, we're starting to get into the romantic orchestras. They're all knocking about here. We're moved on a lot from Mozart and Beethoven, but Daphnis is orchestra. There is 15 different players, different players, not instruments, different players in the wind section. That means there's people doubling up on second instruments as well. So some players are playing two. So there's 15 people in the wind. So that's for your flutes, clarinets, oboes, and bassoons. There's 15 people in there for different parts, you know, alto flute and piccolo and all that shit. In the brass, there's 12 players. There's 15 different percussion instruments, including the fucking wind machine, which I'm not entirely sure about that yet. Um, I, knew, I could probably do a podcast episode on its own on the wind machine and how it's developed and all that shit. But anyway, the strings in it are divided into 10 different parts. Now, normally the string section in an orchestra, you have your violins, your violin twos, your violas, and your cellos and basses. The cellos and basses often play in the same part until a certain period in time where they split apart. So we're talking four to five different parts. Ravel splits it in, at times into 10. So that means, yeah, there's 10 different separate string parts going on for the different players. And there's also a full choir who actually never say any fucking words. They just like do weird noises and shit, but there's a full choir as well needing this. So this is a monstrous thing. And there's so many layers in the sound so much shit going on so that's what layers means essentially it means there's a lot of different things going on so a really interesting thing to try and do go pick a section pick any fucking section of it go into spotify find the album there's a fucking load of shit in it there's loads of tracks pick any one listen to it pick a wee 30 second bit listen to that 30 seconds go back listen to it again go back listen to it one more time three times and each time try and pick out an instrument or a sound because it might be two instruments or a group of instruments, but pick out a specific sound and follow it and try to keep your ear on that. Try to just keep on track with it and see where it goes. You see, when you start doing that, you'll see how fucking complicated that piece of music is. It's amazing. It's amazing. So what, because of these layers, that starts to give the whole general sound of the orchestra a really rich, complicated, luscious, smooth, 
sexy sound. So the overall aesthetic, before I even talk about the musicality of it, the overall aesthetic of it is so sexy and rich. That's where the sexiness starts to come in. Next up is the colors. Now you'll hear people um, talk about this all the fucking time in classical music, the colors in music. Now that doesn't mean that Ravel's writing in purple here and blue here, please. Although there is people that do that. There's people that can associate um, tonalities or different instruments or different key key signatures with certain colors. It's called chronochromy. Is it in English? Yeah, but it's, yeah, chronochromy. Messiaen wrote a piece about it. Um, but that's not what we're talking about. When people talk about colors in classical music, it's a fancy way of sort of talking about the colors. Um, yeah, how do, I, how do I say this? It's sort of the different sounds or timbres. I'm, I was trying not to use that word, but I'm going to say timbre. So timbre or timbre. I saw a video recently where an American guy, fucking Americans, an American guy was explaining the word timbre. And he said, Tambra, pronounced Tambra. Go on, mate. Brah. It's not brah. Tambra is not pronounced like that, brah. Tambra. It's a fucking French word, but Tambra will do. But don't go Tambra. So that's what this is talking about. That's what colours are. It's the different timbres, the unique sounds of the music or the instrument. Now, that's an interesting thing as well because we talk about colours and timbres. That can either be the different instruments or the groups of instruments within the orchestra. So that ties into the orchestration we're talking about. But it can also be the different ways that a player, so a single player, can change the sound of their instrument to then change the colour. So to change the timbre of their individual instrument. And then that becomes an end of cycle because it's not just one player, it's two players. And then it's two players doing it together or they've had a chat about it beforehand. Or you know, you're maybe talking about the timbre of the wind section being one way, but then the wind section suddenly decides in another bit, we're going to play it in a different way and we're going to try something new. And then the timbre within the timbre changes. It's fucking mad. So it changes all the time. Um, so because of that, this is what gives, again, this complexity to it. Um, and I have to say that the colours and daftness, the reason they're particularly sexy is they're always changing. So things are always moving, but it's always with fluidity and lucidity. So it's never sudden. There's never a sudden switch in the way Ravel moves from one, one sound to another. There's always a logical way of going up it. There's sometimes even, so it's never, it's not always quick. Sometimes it will draw it out over such a fucking long time. So he will constantly go, and you don't know where he's going. You just know that the piece isn't over yet, and it's definitely going somewhere, and you're sitting there going, fuck me, where's it going? Where's it going? And he draws now, and draws, draws now. But you find yourself constantly, in this piece specifically, you find yourself constantly going, oh, uh, and then when it gets to you, go, oh, oh, I, oh, I. For the audio listeners, this is, I'm making a funny face when I'm doing this to, to diffuse the situation. But for you guys, you've just heard my joyous tumult. <laughs> but the, the mm feeling that comes, that's not sexy at all. The mm feeling comes, especially in the flute solo. There's a lot of twists and turns in it and the play it is so, ah. So if you haven't heard the piece as well before, one really good thing is when you listen to it, it will sound familiar to your ear. Especially if you're not into classical music, it will still sound familiar to your ear. That's because so many fucking modern film composers are heavily inspired by this piece because it's so 
is so specific in the emotion and the image it's trying to depict. It's so, so, so clear about it that it's very inspirational to modern orchestras. Um, so there's one section in the first part called La Danse Cortes de Dorcon. Dorcon, Dorcon, I can't remember how it says his name, but it's the, the grotesque dance of Dorcon. It's one of the lads who's, when Chloe goes on one of her adventures, it's one of the lads who tries to ride her. Um, but anyway, he does this dance to impress her. And the score for that in Ravel, in Daphne's and Chloe, is so fucking similar to the one by, I should have checked this out, Michael Kamen, the guy who wrote the Die Hard score. So it sounds so similar to the score in Die Hard 1, specifically the bit where fucking Gruber goes off Nakatomi Plaza, where he's falling down Nakatomi Plaza. Just at that bit, it sounds so fucking similar. I really hope right now I can put in a small clip of this both these side by side and um it's technical technically a musical review that's how you get around copyright so it's a musical review so it is a review and just in case the ai of spotify or apple or youtube are listening to check out that this is a musical review my review is that both these pieces are fucking brilliant take it away boys Wasn't that lovely? I hope he's actually got to listen to it and it hasn't been removed. Um, if it hasn't, fuck, I might put something else in. I don't know, I might put another noise in. I might put me doing this with my glass. That's what I'll do, I'll put that in instead. If you heard that instead of uh, Ravel's masterpiece and the music accompanying Gruber as he goes tits first off Nakatomi Plaza, then that means that I've got a legal battle on my hands. But anyway, last bit, the solo, the solo itself, the famous flute solo. Um, now listen, before I talk about this and why it's so sexy, I haven't actually told you as much about where it is in the piece, apart from it's in the third part and where it sits in the story, so you can follow that along. Where it actually is to go and listen to it in the recording, that differs depending on what recording you listen to and how they list the tracks in Spotify, and also if you're listening to the ballet or the suite. Now what I'm going to do is, next week, my next podcast episode is going to be the recording special. I'm going to count down my favourite recordings of this. And in each one, I'm going to pinpoint exactly where the solo is, where you can find it, what track number it is, and you get five different recordings of that. That way, you don't have to fucking think. You can just go straight into Spotify or YouTube or Apple or whatever you're using and just go and blast it. Okay, so please don't fear for that. This is for all the things apart from actually listening to it. This is for all your background knowledge and all you need to know before you go to listen. Now, the solo is sexy. That's It's sexy in itself. There's a few reasons for that. First of all, the accompaniment that goes with it. So, it's towards the end of the piece. It's just before the actual finale. And the orchestra goes quiet. It goes very quiet. And the main noise we hear is the double basses and they're going boom. Boom, 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 and they're just bouncing, and they're waiting, and then suddenly the flute comes in with this big fucking scale, it's an F sharp minor scale by the way, 
I wish people would stop treating it as some kind of A scale. It's an F sharp minor scale. The resolution of the note afterwards of the three G sharps at the start, they're wanting to go to the F sharp. That's why they're so distant. But anyway, the flute flies in with the scale. And it takes away. And I can say, playing this piece, oh my fucking God, for anxiety. Because the org- you've played so much. You've done so much work. You've played so much music. You've blasted away. It's technical difficult up to this point. And then suddenly the orchestra goes quiet. And the basses are doing it. And you've got three bars to count of boom, boom, and you have to come in on the next one. And your heart just fucking is pounding out your chest by, pounding out your chest, but you just, you chill out, and you fucking close your eyes, and you think, this is it, this is the big moment. And it is a massive solo. So that little rhythm the basses give, that's a dance rhythm. The boom, boom, it's leading up. So that's a wee up step if you dance. So it's got this dance rhythm. We know it's going the right, but it's not fast. In fact, in fact, it's très long. It's very slow. So the flute flies up. Now the solo is never abrupt. It's never got a hard edge to it. It's so smooth. It's so sneaky. It just climbs up and down the flute. There's no real big intervals in the solo. So it just sort of winds in and out. And that's what gives it that sensuality and that kind of, even the rhythms, the way they're written, they're deliberately written in a way that they slow down or get faster. So Ravel doesn't always leave that to the musician. He will write in notes, which mean you go, okay, at the end of the first line of it, I think it's the first line. Yeah, the F, G, F, he's deliberately writing in a ralentando there. No, a cellarando, sorry, excuse me. But anyway, he's writing in this so it is so weighted and so smooth. Everything comes from the thing before. So whatever is written before has a clear way of going to the next bar and smoothly. There's never a hard edge in this whole fucking solo. It's so smooth, but it's also very virtuosic. It's fast, it's high, it climbs right up to the top G sharp on the flute at the start and makes its way right down to the bottom of the flute at some point as well. It goes right, right down. Um, the whole thing is an F-sharp minor. Well, not the whole thing, but the, the first chunk of it is an F-sharp minor, so it's dark and dirty as a tonality. F-sharp minor is a rough key. It is a dark, dirty key. And then, about halfway through the piece, um, it has this amazing change. It's my favourite bit of the entire solo. It has this change. Um, which just gives it this piece of fucking magic, but it's also really sexy as well the way it's done. Um, so it happens if you're if you're reading the score, it happens at the one seven eight mark, the rehearsal mark. It's also where it's got PPP written. I think it's got Au Mouvement written as well. I really should have got the score in front of me. Um, but it suddenly changes key, so the flute goes quietly. So it's climbing up a scale, but it's slowing down. So the notes are getting higher, but the flute's slowing down, and it's getting quieter. And then suddenly it plays this D, and it just comes, I don't know if that's a D or not. Um, it plays this note, and then half a beat later, the orchestra come in, and they're in a major key. And there's a new color and a whole new feed into the piece, and it's so gently introduced to you. It just, it's from this dirty, dark solo, and the, the dovetailing of the way the flute is written to really gently make that switch. And then just as you play the new note and bring in the new color, the orchestra comes in just behind the flute. And it's just the smoothness of that transition. For such an extreme transition from such a dirty key to such a warm, happy key, and to be done in such a smooth way is 
downright dirty to be totally honest with you um it's absolutely fucking gorgeous and there's this huge sense of relief there's a huge sense of uh, relief if you know what i'm saying <laughs> um fuck right gonna get on to the conclusion here lads so listen lads ladies everything in between we're going to wrap this up here. That's it. That's the end of the podcast. I hope you all got something out of this episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I did making it. I hope you enjoyed it a lot. I hope you really enjoyed it. I hope you filled your boots. Um, listen, as I said, next week I am going to be talking about the five best recordings. I should say my five favourite recordings, but they're the best for me. And this is obviously not this is obviously my opinion this podcast obviously if you haven't got that point by now fuck me if you're taking this as fact or you think i'm claiming anything as fact i mean i'm drinking a gin and diet fanta with an umbrella in it at fucking half past 11 on a tuesday night would you ever listen to me but anyway i will be getting into those five solos the five best ones so i'll go through them you'll know exactly where to listen to i'll tell you about the differences in them it's kind of like a part two to this podcast where we'll actually get into the flute solo properly and what makes each um, recording so fucking special. And it also means if you just want to listen to the recordings and the flute solos and not have to listen to the entire piece because you can't be fucked, I've got you covered. I'll give you five good ones that people don't know and you'll look very smart. I'll give you five ones outside Bayou and Galway. You look good. Um, anyway, once again, big thank you to all of you. If you listened, if you watched, if you got involved he sent me a comment it means the fucking world guys i cannot tell you how fucking insane it is that people shall listen to this podcast and you're giving me reviews on it it is so fucking sweet um this takes a lot of time to do this podcast between writing the script for each episode doing the research setting up the equipment post-production editing writing the descriptions doing all the thumbnails and all that shit uploading it to acast getting it all different uh, on the different spotify places spotify and apple and blah 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 it takes a lot of fucking time and I'm trying to get one out a week um, and one of the things that really helps me doing that is your positive comments because if you guys say you're enjoying it it go, makes me go right well fuck I'll make another episode then someone's getting something out of this so even if I can't be arsed doing it sometimes I know I'm doing it for you guys or someone out there might get something from it and then I'm like yeah fuck it great then happy days let's do it so please leave me a wee comment if you've even just listened to it let me know if you've made it this far also don't forget to give me a follow on Instagram tiktok i'm also there now yeah i'm 30 years old and i'm on tiktok it's a fucking dire place you should see flute tiktok oh my god it's so cringy but we're there we're there there's a couple of good ones on it to be fair maybe i'll do an episode right tell you the good guys the the ones that make excellent content on there but fuck me but anyway go follow me in there because that's apparently where you get followers and that's where people do shit so yeah go follow me on instagram and tiktok and Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great weekend. Big smooches. Love you all. Mwah.